Good morning. We're going to read the entirety of chapter 14 this morning. It said, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up against the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe and cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did a good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church and with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Poseidon and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Maybe seated. Thank you, Chris, for the reading of the word this morning. I'm going to ask church, if you would, to join me in a word of prayer. And we'll begin our study in the word this morning. Father, I'm your servant, and I'm asking this morning that you would give me understanding from your word. Teach me, use me, fill me this morning with your spirit to proclaim your words of truth. Father, I pray that your word would find entry this morning 
into the hearts of those who have gathered. The word says that the entrance of your words gives light. So Father, I pray that you would shine your light just now and that you would penetrate and pierce and convict. Father, we welcome you as our guide as we open your word together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you perhaps have traveled places, maybe your family's gone on uh, field trips, and you've gone places where you have been shown around certain areas. You've had a tour guide lead you and show you some different things. That tour guide points out the significant sights on the journey. And I was thinking about someone like a, a trail guide, someone who you're going on a, a hike and, and it's a pretty extensive trail and you have a trail guide. And, and a trail guide is someone that I'm trusting has walked this path before. They've been down this path and they know what this path is all about. They're able to tell me what to expect. They know how difficult the terrain is. They have a good idea of the age group for this particular path. It may not be good for a certain age. They know about how long it's going to take to hike through this trail. They know where the rest stops perhaps are along the way. They know the potential dangers in the path. They may point out some things that you can look at as you're walking through the path. They may also tell you that, oh, by the way, there are some animals on this path. Keep your eyes open. They may also tell you that there's In parts of the path, there are fallen logs that you'll have to climb over. It's also comforting to know with the trail guide that if something were to go wrong, something were to happen, that the trail guide reassures you that, oh, by the way, I've got access to communicate with someone in the event of an emergency. A trail guide is helpful for the journey, isn't he? You know, as I was reading, uh, I was looking at, you know, the whole book of Acts, as we've been studying, we've got to remember it's not primarily about the apostles. It's primarily about the movement of the Holy Spirit, working in and through these apostles, working in and through his word and carrying his word out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and now to the very end of the earth. And John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 tells us a lot about who this Holy Spirit is, his role, his work, his ministry. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, listen to this, Jesus says this, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. This this helper, this comforter, this encourager, this teacher, he is going to, Jesus says, guide you into all truth. And so, you know, I read that, what Jesus says, and I ask, do do you live each day with awareness that the promised Holy Spirit is present to guide you in your life journey? 1972 was a good year. 
Right now, my, my life is, is, is represented by 1972 and a dash. There's no other set of numbers currently on the other side of the dash. It represents that I'm still living. There's coming a day, though, when another four numbers will appear on the other side of that dash. That second set of numbers will close the door on my earthly journey. It, it will define the length of my journey here as a pilgrim, as a sojourner. Each of you has four numbers and a dash just like me. We share that in common this morning. Your number, your first number may not be 1972. Maybe it's a different number. In fact, it might be helpful to write your number down. If you've got, if you're taking notes, just jot your number down. What is your number? What's that first set of numbers? And you can go ahead and write that dash. You have loved ones, you have friends with four numbers, a dash, and four additional numbers. Their earthly journey is already completed. Some journeys here are quite short, aren't they? Others, others may extend a hundred years or so. My grandmother, she just turned 91. Her best friend is 101. She's still doing great. When you die you receive those four other numbers beside the dash. So here you are, you're you're seated here today between the dash and the other set of numbers which will put the final bookend on your life journey here. The, The two sets of numbers represent when you start the journey and when you end the journey here. The dash is all that happens in between. The the dash is the stuff between life and death. You know, I was thinking how how sad it is. And perhaps you've been attended a funeral of this sort. I I remember a, a funeral. And I remember hearing nothing more of this person's life than... Uh, listing of, of hobbies and activities. I, I, I walked away and I, here's what I learned about this one particular funeral. I learned that this person was a Colts fan and that they were an avid fisherman. You know, on most funerals they have pictures. You know, pictures of that person and their family and some of the, and, and everything revolved around everything, you know, all of his pictures had, had him wearing a Colts hat and he had a Colts shirt on and he had a Colts and a football and, uh, and, and, and it's fish. And you left the funeral, I did, going, huh? Really? Is that that what life, is that what this is about? You begin to see the stuff that defined the dash in the person's life. Because really the dash in your life is is going to be characterized in one of two ways, church. It's going to be Holy Spirit directed, or it's going to be directed by the flesh how's your dash going to be defined 
How many life journeys? How many, think about, how many life journeys in miserably and without hope because they were directed by the flesh? Do you know that the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that operating the flesh, you cannot please God? Think about it. If, if there's no Holy Spirit guiding your journey, if there's no Holy Spirit leading you to all truth, if there's no Holy Spirit teaching you the ways of Christ, for that's what he does. He points you to Christ. If there's no Holy Spirit serving as down payment on your inheritance to come, Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14 says he is our earnest. When that day comes, is the Spirit of Christ in you? If there is no Holy Spirit, if there is no Christ in you, what a sad journey this life really is. Do you rely on the Holy Spirit as your guide for everyday living? Everyday living. Do you recognize the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life? Is the dash in your life journey characterized by Holy Spirit-directed living? Holy Spirit-directed living. You know, as Paul and Barnabas, as they journeyed through Cyprus and the regions of Pamphylia and Galatia, the testimony of Scripture is that God's Spirit has been leading this journey. Amen? Do you see that in the Scripture? God's Spirit has been leading this journey. These missionaries have been led by the Holy Spirit. Their bold words are compliments of the Holy Spirit. And even their travel itinerary, as we'll see today, has been orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. The text provides evidence for a Holy Spirit-directed journey. We're going to see here at the beginning, these first few verses, the Holy Spirit directed return. They're going to be making a return trip home. Derby is the end of the line for this particular missionary journey. And we're told that Paul and Barnabas, they make their way to Derby, some 20, 30 miles away from where they were in Lystra. And then we read these words. And when they had preached the gospel, verse 21 to that city, to Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Pisidia. Not a whole lot's given, is there, about their time in Derby. It's interesting that wherever they go, the Holy Spirit, as he's leading Luke to write the details, the orderly account of what was going on, in some places, he, he builds up and he'll give a whole sermon, a whole message that Paul preached. In some places, he'll, send, he'll just point out some, some small details. In this particular occasion at Derby, he gives us good news. It's very brief, but isn't it good news? He preached the gospel and made many disciples. Many disciples were made in Derby. Verses 21 through 28. Speak of the Holy Spirit-directed return trip back to the church at Antioch in Syria. It's important. In fact, if you have your maps, you may have a map. And if you don't have a copy of, of a, this particular map, uh, your Bible, uh, no doubt, at the back. You may have a, a map at the back of your Bible you can turn to. Because it's helpful to see on this return trip the route that they take. I believe it's important for us to look at the route they take home. It says something. It speaks volumes, I believe. I believe it teaches us something. It's instructive. The Holy Spirit has been directing them for quite a while. 
So to see the Holy Spirit directing the return trip home, we need to understand it's just further evidence that he's guiding the journey. Okay? Further evidence. Because you can go back to Acts chapter 9, and you see that Paul's, his conversion, and Ananias says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. We see evidence of being filled with the Spirit Three verses later, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. We see also testimony in the scripture of his traveling companion in Acts chapter 11, 24. Barnabas, some some descriptor of Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. We see that in Acts chapter 13, as the church is gathered there in Antioch, as they are ministering to the Lord and fasting, that the Holy Spirit says, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Verse 4, these men are sent out by the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit's work in Paphos there in Cyprus. The gospel is preached. Conflict with Elymas the sorcerer. Sergius Paulus hears and believes the gospel. Amen. And we see the, the move as, as they keep journeying through. They move from Cyprus and they go up. And the Holy Spirit's work now in Antioch, Pisidia. The gospel is preached. Conflict with the Jewish leaders who expel them from the city. Remember that? And as they leave, they shake the dust against them. Their feet. And they move on. And they travel to Iconium. We see the Holy Spirit's work in Iconium. The gospel is preached. Many Jews and Greeks believe. Conflict arises when unbelieving Jews, they poison the minds of the Gentiles against the brethren. And they leave because of a plot on their life. The Holy Spirit's work then moves into Lystra. The gospel is preached. Man is healed, a cripple. And opens the door for some further teaching. And the disciples are made in Lystra. And now on the surface you might wonder where are those disciples. But verse 20 of the text clues us in that there were some disciples. Even in the midst of Paul being stoned, left for dead... It says the disciples gathered around him. There were disciples in Lystra. There's a, there's a breath of fresh air even in the midst of one left for dead. The Holy Spirit's at work. And we see his work in Derby. That the gospel is preached and many disciples are made. Do you see the evidence of a Holy Spirit directed journey? The Holy Spirit has been at work and he's going to continue to work as we read the history of the church in this book of Acts. But the Holy Spirit is is not confined simply to church history. If you are in Christ, you too have been given the Holy Spirit to direct your life. I don't want us to miss the connection between 1st century and 21st century. The Holy Spirit directed living that we see in the book of Acts is a narrative of what ought to be. Holy Spirit-directed living is the way a believer in Jesus Christ lives. (laughs) So what characterized this return trip back home? How is the Holy Spirit's role magnified in this journey from Derby to Antioch, Syria? When you look on the map and you see where Derby is, maybe you're wondering like I am. Why Paul and Barnabas didn't simply just go from Derby and follow that via Sebastian, the emperor's road, and, and go east into the region of Cilicia through the Taurus Mountains. And if they kept going east, they would finally come to a road that would intersect and take them south into Antioch, Syria. 
which is where they're going. That's their return home trip. You look on the map, and it seems to be a fairly, I mean, in terms of just looking at the map, it seems like that would be the route to go. You know, a lot of times when we're, we're looking on a direction or how to get, we're looking at, is it going to get us there quick? That's oftentimes what we're thinking. What's the quickest way home? Especially when we've been gone a long time, we want to get home. These, these folks, they've been gone for a long time. I mean, think about that for just a moment. But they don't go home that way. The Bible says that the missionaries backtrack, going back through Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Perga, Italia, and then board a ship and sail over to Antioch. A more logical return would have been just going east and then taking that road to go south. But they circle back through the Galatia territory and head back in the direction that they came. Why? And we can't miss this. This is very important for us that we don't miss this. I believe that the Holy Spirit's directing the return home trip is instructive for each one of us. I believe that the divine itinerary on the return trip teaches us a great deal about God's purposes for his followers. It causes me to ask the question, as a follower of Jesus... Are you seeking converts or making disciples? Are you seeking converts or making disciples? You see, they reverse direction through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Pisidia for disciple-making purposes. Many converts had already been made. They could have just returned home another way, but they don't. And because they don't, it raises a question, why'd they do that? I believe the Holy Spirit leads the missionaries back into hostile territory because the mission is much more than winning converts. The mission is making disciples of all the nations. Amen? Making disciples of all the nations. Not filling a quota of converts to share with the church back in Antioch, Syria. Hey, hey, look at how many decisions we made. Or look at the names of people who said yes to Jesus while we were gone. That wasn't Paul and Barnabas' objective as they go out. Acts 14, 22 and 23. That's really, in many ways, a core part of this text. It provides the content of what happened on the return journey. And I believe the divine itinerary to go back the way that they did reveals the bigger picture of what God is after, not only for Paul and Barnabas, but in your life as well. Christ did not die, church, so that you could simply say, I'm saved from the wrath to come. Praise the Lord, we're saved from the wrath to come. He died that you might be compelled to live for him the remainder of your days. He did not die for a one-time decision, but for a lifelong commitment to walk as he walked. That's Christ, 1 John 2, 6. So what's the textual evidence of a spirit-directed journey? It says they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. For what purpose? What did they spend their time doing on the return trip? Let me give you six things. The first three will take a little slower. The last three will will kind of compile them together because they're connected. Okay? Here's the first thing they did. They they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. You know, when you think about strengthening the souls of disciples, 
the question came to mind, how, how do disciples get strengthened primarily? You know, and there's three, there's three ways primarily that I'd like to just point out to you from the scripture. Psalm 119 verse 28, the psalmist says, my soul melts with heaviness. And he says, strengthen me according to your word. So one of the ways that we strength, get strengthened is through God's word. Through the reading and the intake of God's word. Church, here, listen. If you are not intaking God's word, you may be walking around very weakly. You may not be a very strong Christian. Our strength comes in part from this word that he's given to us. Strengthen me, God. Maybe that can be our prayer. Strengthen me according to your word. We see Isaiah 41 verse 10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In the New Testament, we see Paul writing to Timothy in chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. And Paul says, you know, at my first defense, when I was on trial, my first defense, no one stood with me. All forsook me. May it not be charged against them. I love that. But then he goes on and says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. So we see God, testimony of scripture is that God strengthens as well through his presence, through his Holy Spirit. But I believe there's one other way that he strengthens us as well. And we see ex- examples of this in, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 28. Moses is called to strengthen Joshua for the task ahead. Joshua is now about to lead the people. Moses is about to die. And God's called Moses to strengthen Joshua for what's ahead. We see it also in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22. Jesus is telling Simon Peter, he says, I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And he says, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Strengthen your brethren. You see, we're not only strengthened by his word and not only strengthened by his presence in us through the Holy Spirit, but we are strengthened through others, right? And that really ties in in many ways to to what else they did on their return trip, on their return home. Paul and Barnabas, they're making this return trip through Lystra and Iconia, and, and Antioch, Pisidia, and they are strengthening the souls of the disciples. They strengthen them through the preaching and teaching of God's word, through their presence alone. I mean, think about it. The risk involved in just them coming, cycling back through the area. I think their presence there would have spoken volumes to those disciples. That it's worth it. Every ounce of it, it's worth it. They saw these guys risking their very lives to strengthen them in the faith. They were sharpening. You know, I think about that iron, sharpening iron. And that's usually a verse that's reserved for uh, the men getting together for breakfast. Sharpening. It's much more than that. Okay? The body of Christ is strengthened... When each part is participating. That's Ephesians 4. Each part doing its work. 
contributing, serving, sharing with one another, pointing to Christ, exalting his name. The, the converse of this principle is also true, that, that, that the body of Christ grows flabby, it grows weak when she fails to exercise godliness. Think about it, when our muscles, when we don't use our muscles, when you don't use your muscle, what's going to happen? It's just going to grow weak. I believe the same principle is true. When we are not being strengthened, when we are not strengthening others. That's what they were doing. But they were also exhorting them to continue in the faith. Do you see that in the text? Not only did they strengthen the souls of the disciples, but they exhorted them. Some translations say encouraged them to continue in the faith. They made their return trip, encouraging the disciples to continue, to keep on going, keep going. You know what? I was thinking Barnabas. You remember what his name, you know, son of encouragement? I just bet you Barnabas enjoyed this part of the trip. I bet the son of encouragement was in his element, encouraging the disciples. Exhorting them on in the faith. Encouraging them. But Barnabas is not the only one called to do this. Did you know the church is called to exhort one another? Hebrews 10. It says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good work. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As is the manner of some. But exhorting one another, and so much the more as what? As you see the day, capital D, approaching. Exhorting one another to continue in the faith, to keep pressing on, to endure to the end, to hold on to the Lord through the difficulties that come. The call to encourage and exhort one another comes in the context of the journey we find ourselves on. Remember, we're somewhere between the dash and those other four numbers, aren't we? Be reminded as well of the temporary nature of this journey. There's a day coming when Christ is making his return trip to earth. Amen. Look forward to that. What a day it will be. In the meantime, and in light of that return, his disciples are to be found exhorting, encouraging one another in the faith. In the faith. Notice what they are exhorting them in. In the faith, not in the latest sports weather news item of the day. In the faith. What else are they doing as they make their return trip through these cities? It says and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. There's a warning. There's a strengthening of the souls. There's an exhorting. There's a warning, I believe, put forth here. A warning that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Okay? This warning's put forth to them. Many tribulations await you as you enter the kingdom of God, as you walk the path of Christ. The exhortation to continue in the faith is coupled with this warning that, guys, it's not going to be easy. Walking this kingdom road ought not to be considered comfortable. Oh, but that's part of the problem. We like comfort, don't we? 
we like, we like to be comfortable. Even we walked in and walked in this room and, and you know, the air was blasted on. It's nice and cool in here. To live in a place where you don't have that air, the comfort of the air condition. Boy, we, get, we can get pretty hostile pretty quickly when we don't have what we like. When we don't have what we're accustomed to. But I believe the text and what we see Paul and Barnabas doing as they're making their return trip through these particular cities. They're pointing out that the disciple of Jesus, being a disciple, leads to a life of conflict, leads to a life of trials, leads to a life of, yes, discomfort. A life where the longer you live, the more of a stranger you seem to be. You ever feel out of place here? Like you don't belong? You know, the longer that I live, the more I consider Psalm 73, verses 24 and 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, the Holy Spirit-directed journey... We need to understand this warning that's put forth here. It's not without tribulations and difficulties. In fact, you can see the connection of the Holy Spirit in a a particular difficulty. And just early on in the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, after he gets baptized, what happens? It says, then Jesus, Luke 4 verse 1, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was what? He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For what purpose? Being tempted for 40 days by the devil. The tribulations are, are not intended to just short-circuit one's journey with Christ. That when we encounter one, it's like, it's like the seed that gets sown on that stony path. You remember that? There's joy initially when the word is heard. But when trial and tribulation comes as a result of the word, those people quickly fall away. It's too tough. I believe Paul and Barnabas were warning the people about the commitments that they made to Jesus. You took a stand. You believed on Jesus and his finished work. You've been baptized in the name of Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus now. There's no turning your hand from the plow to look back. Commit to walking each day with the Lord. Understanding that tribulations await you. This is not going to be easy, brothers and sisters. There's a warning put forth. Consider your own life as a disciple. Are your days filled with how to satisfy yourself or how your days would please God? If anyone would come after me, Jesus says. What does he say? He must deny himself. That's the first item on the list. And yet the church seems to have little time for one another. Instead of denying self, the church has catered to self all too often. And that verse then goes on to mention that one who follows Jesus must also take up a cross daily. You see, following Jesus may not be what we thought it to be. The directive to follow me only comes after deny self and take up your cross daily. 
Are you committed to being a disciple of Jesus? Are you a two feet in follower? Are you heeding the warning put forth? Many tribulations are set before the disciple of Jesus, entering into the kingdom of God, walking that road with the Lord. This is no light-hearted decision. It's not like saying yes to join the club, yes to join the team, yes to join the organization. No, this is much different. This is lifelong. Saying yes to Jesus and forsaking the ways of the world and walking wholeheartedly as Christ walked. That's the idea. And how do we do that? We do that in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. A Holy Spirit-directed journey. Well, what else? Let me give you these three in succession. They're all found in verse 23. Structuring and ordering. Says when they had appointed elders in every church, praying and fasting. Text says they prayed with fasting and commending or committing them to the Lord. They commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We see here in the text there is there's no mention of deacons yet, but elders. Paul and Barnabas they appoint elders in every church on their return trip. And there's a sense of, we see here, a sense of order already being established. And I, you know, I love this verse, but, you know, there's, there's a question that oftentimes arises right here. And church leaders begin to get a little squirmy and nervous when they read this verse. How is it that Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in these churches when the churches are filled with new converts? How does that happen? There's a lot of skeptics out there. Well, surely there had to have been some veteran, you know, elders somewhere. That they appointed in these churches. It's a valid question. I believe the Holy Spirit directed journey provides an answer to the question. I want you to notice that they spend time on this return trip praying and fasting with these churches. And they spend time commending them, committing them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The structuring, praying, commending, they're connected. They work together. And that's why I wanted to cover them collectively. And you begin to answer the elder questions, I believe, as you see them praying and fasting, commending the church to the Lord. In other words, the human concern in this passage, which is no doubt a real concern for church leaders today, it pales in comparison to Holy Spirit-directed concern set forth in the text. What do you mean? Is it possible that the church has lost sight of where everything began? When these churches started forming, there seems to be, as I read the text, there seems to be more weight given to the work of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) The Holy Spirit directed the ways of the early church. The Holy Spirit, remember, had only been poured out, Acts 2, about 13, 14 years prior to what we're reading in Acts 14, 23. All right, let's remember that. Still a pretty new idea. The power of the Holy Spirit. The life of God in the soul of man. And so, since we are now some 2,000 years removed from the arrival of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, I wonder, 
Have we grown dull with the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Disciples are still called to live Holy Spirit-directed lives. The church at Hope in Christ is still called to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's words in Galatians 3, verse 3. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? (laughs) This all started, this all began. As the Holy Spirit is moving and working in the lives of these people, pointing them to Christ. You see the gravity here of appointing elders in every church. It's accompanied with prayer and fasting. They're seeking the Lord's guidance in this. And before they leave the area, they're commending these churches to the Lord in whom they believe. Listen, they're trusting the Lord to take care of his church. There seems to be an intersection here in the text of Missions and church planting. Paul and Barnabas are sent out with the gospel. But they're not sent to pastor local churches necessarily. They they proclaim the gospel. And many come to saving faith through this word of truth. They teach. They equip. They appoint elders. Notice they don't appoint senior pastors. Just point it out. They appoint elders. Elders, plural. Okay, that's what the text says. They appointed elders. That's the way it all began. And you keep reading the New Testament, and you see that there are deacons that come along, Timothy chapter 3. Some additional order and structure is given in, in those pastoral letters, Timothy and Titus. But for now, there's an appointment of elders. They pray and fast, not only for the leadership of the church, but for the Lord to be the guide in these assemblies. And that the gospel will continue to bear fruit in these places and go forward in the lives of these new disciples. See, the Holy Spirit-directed return, it strengthens, it exhorts, it warns the disciples. It also provides for order through the establishment of elders, praying, fasting, commending these churches to the Lord. And to think that none of these things would have flourished had they decided to go home a different road. Look at verses 24 through 26. After they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, so they're moving down toward the coast. And when they had preached the word in Perga, as they were going... Just mentions that they went into Perga. Doesn't necessarily mention that they spoke or, or preached there on the return trip. Now, on the return trip, sometimes that return trip, again, think about it. They're tired. They've been through a lot. This has been a long trip. We just want to get home. Can I just point out to you, they didn't have that mindset. They're still preaching the word on the way home. When they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. And then from there, they sailed to Antioch. That must have been a glorious 
time looking forward to seeing their brothers and sisters back at the church where they'd been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. You see, there, was, there seems to be a, an example set forth. We see there in verse 26. Just as Paul and Barnabas were commended to the grace of God for the work being sent out, we see Paul and Barnabas doing the very same thing with the churches as they cycle back through. They are commending them to the grace of God. They are committing these churches into the hands of God and the one in whom they believed. And that was sufficient. They finally arrive home. And notice that the text says that they completed the work. See that at the end of verse 26? For the work which they had completed. Some of your translations may say the work which they finished. They finished the work. Ah, that's instructive as well. Yes, there's going to be more work to do, and we'll see that in the pages to come. But, but they finished the work for which they were sent on this particular journey. You know, he got to thinking about how often, how often does the work of the church stagnate and fizzle? <laughs> how often does ministering to the Lord play second fiddle to other items on your schedule? You know, I wonder what it was like in the church at Antioch upon hearing that Paul and Barnabas, can you, can you picture it? The, the ship comes in, the boat comes in, whatever, they, they're sailing, they're coming into port. They probably came in the same port area that they left on right there, uh, Seleucia there on the, the port, and, and they're able to, they're 15, about 15 miles away from Antioch. But you can almost, just, there is an excitement in the air. They're coming home. This is, this is wonderful news. People start to hear about it. Paul and Barnabas are back. Paul and Barnabas are back home. We see here in these last few verses a Holy Spirit-directed report. There's a Holy Spirit-directed return But they also come back and now they're going to give a report. When they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them. And that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. You know, I couldn't help, as I'm reading this, I couldn't help but just see the connection here between what happened on their return trip and this report that they gathered the church together. The church at Antioch had her own prayer and testimony time. And once again, I believe the text is instructive here. I want you to look at who gets highlighted. Look at who Paul and Barnabas point to. Praise and testimony is about what God has done. Do we see that? It's about what God has done. Missionaries are returning with a Holy Spirit-directed report. And I know that that's so because the attention is on what God did. The Holy Spirit is always about magnifying what the Lord is doing. You know, last Sunday, I can remember while we were at the tables and we had our praise and testimony time last week. And I remember in the moment, as some of you were sharing, I remember there was a group of young folks sitting at that table right over there. And some of you young folks, if you were sitting at that table, you you remember, probably frighteningly so, you remember that I, I just desired to hear what you had to say and what you wanted, you know, had, what, what is it that you want to praise God about? And so some of you shared. I, I didn't know exactly why at the time. I, I, I'm very certain that there was a clear prompting to put that forward for you young people to share. But some of those unknowns were, were 
at the time. They were clarified this week as I was studying this text. I learned some things listening to your responses last week. Some of you, maybe for school, you, you, have, you have some highlighters, right? Different colored highlighters. And the highlighter draws attention to the material in the text that you'd like to immediately reference. The idea of a highlighter, it magnifies what's on the page. It stands out as different than the rest of the text next to it. August 3rd is going to be, Lord willing, our next planned praise and testimony time here at Hope in Christ. And perhaps it would be good to to take some counsel right here of, of when the church at Antioch, when they gather together to hear this report, it says that they spoke of what God did, Paul and Barnabas. They spoke of what God did and how God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Think about it. Think about what's just happened. For so long, this church in Jerusalem was, was 100%, wasn't it? It's Hebrew, it's Jewish. And it, and it kept spreading outward. And in Antioch, you see a good mixture, diversity of people. But now, as a result of this first journey, this first journey, they come back home and there are now churches planted that are Gentile churches. <laughs> That's wonderful news. Now, to some in Jerusalem, we're going to see that's not necessarily all that wonderful because there's going to be someone come at the first verse of chapter 15 and make very clear how one saved. There's going to be a conflict. But nevertheless, it's important and it's wonderful to be able to see this. What's God doing in your lives? How's God operating in your life journey? How is the Holy Spirit directing your lives revealed in this word? We need to understand that if the Holy Spirit is directing your life journey, if, he, if the Holy Spirit is directing your life journey, you will have plenty to share. And what you share will always highlight God's work in your life and what God has been doing. So when people hear your praise and testimony, are they going to be drawn immediately to you or to God? Are they drawn to what you have done or what God is doing in you? Is your achievement the main highlight or is the work of God the highlight? Do you see the difference? There's a difference here. They say, here's what God did with us. Here's what he did with us. (laughs) He used us. Here's what he did. And here's what he did with his gospel. That really summarizes the report in Antioch. You see, the Holy Spirit-directed journey for Paul and Barnabas, it comes to an end. It comes to an end in the place that it all began back in Acts 13. The church in Antioch. A lot happened from the beginning of Acts 13 to the end of Acts 14. About two years of time, give or take, go by. The dash between Acts 13 and 14 the amount of time covered in these two chapters, quite significant. It's a dash that's characterized, I believe, in many ways by Holy Spirit-directed living. The journey was completed as the Holy Spirit enabled them to complete it. Your life journey is still in progress. You're still defining what your dash is going to be. At some point, four additional numbers are going to be placed on the other side of that dash. 
Your earthly journey will one day come to an end. And the question is not, will I die? The question is, when are you going to start living? Will you live the life of a disciple of Jesus following him, directed by the Holy Spirit? Some of you here today have yet to believe in Christ. There are three groups of people I want to address as we close. There are some who have not yet believed. Some of you do not have the Holy Spirit residing in you. You have been living according to the flesh. Romans 8, 8 points that out. It says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And your journey to this point has been absent of a helper, absent of a guide who knows the Father and knows the very words of Christ. Without Christ and the Spirit of God in you. You're left to your own resources. So when the time, here's what that means. When the time comes for you to die then, you will be faced with the terrible accounting. It will be terrible. A terrible accounting of your sin before a holy God. No Holy Spirit deposit in you means no relationship with Christ. There's no Christ in your life. No Christ and you are still in your sins. Still in your sins, you have no peace. No peace with God. You have no peace, you have no hope. You have no hope and that leads to eternal separation from God. Death. An eternity spent in hell. And what a tragedy to continue this life journey in the flesh until you die. Especially, especially having heard the truth. Others of you here know Christ, but your life doesn't, doesn't reflect that. You know Christ. You maybe have made a profession of faith, but you've not been living out your faith. You've said yes to Jesus, but operationally you live as though you really mean no. The text is highlighting what it is to be a disciple. It's calling for Holy Spirit-directed living. A noticeably different kind of living than that of the world. And then there are those of you here who are living a Holy Spirit-directed life. I want to address you for just a moment. Let me encourage you. Keep going. Endure to the end. Persevere. Keep the faith. In light of sufferings, in light of trials, in light of tribulations, let God's word continue to serve as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path each day of your life. You know, no matter where you might be in this relationship with the Lord this morning, each one of us, each one of us, all of us, we we all share these set of numbers and a dash. We share that. And each one of you will one day have four additional numbers on the other side of that dash. Death is coming. It's coming. And if the dash accounts for all the stuff that happens from start to end of your journey here on earth, you need to know this morning that there's really, really, there's only one thing necessary. There's only one thing that makes those last four numbers something to look forward to, something that's going to settle okay and resonate in your spirit is, I'm ready. There's one thing, one necessary thing, and that one necessary thing is really a person. Jesus. It's Jesus, church. Relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's all that matters. This life guided by the Holy Spirit. What's going to define 
your dash when it's all said and done. I hope it's not football. I hope it's not basketball. I hope it's not the biggest fish that you caught back in the day. I hope it's not your favorite hobby. I hope it's not your artwork. I hope it's not your bank account. I hope it's not the number of organizations that you were a part of. All the prestigious clubs you were, you were a part of. All the, all the different board positions you attained in this life. Or a myriad of other accomplishments that you often find in an obituary. God has called each of you not simply to be converted, but to be a disciple. Being a disciple is a precursor to making disciples. Go, therefore, he says, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them. How do we teach them? we got to be in this word. Teaching them to what? To observe and to obey all that I've commanded you, Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, as we do this, we don't do it on our own, but we do it in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. So live for Jesus. Let the evidence of your life journey, however many days you may have left from this point forward, be directed. Let those days be directed by the Holy Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Amen? Let's be about that work. Let's pray. Father, thanks for shining your light of truth. May our lives bear testimony of a Holy Spirit-directed journey here on earth. You've called us to make disciples of the nations. And you have assured us of your presence in the process. So, Father, we ask that you would teach us. Teach us to number our days rightly. Being a witness to Jesus all our days. Walking in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Serving you, Father, all the way to the finish line. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.